This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. Glad to be back with you all again. Today we're starting out with Albert Einstein. He once said, the world we have created is a product of our thinking. To change the world, we must change our thinking. Today, Marcus and I will want to talk to someone who has been working to change the way we think in our society through his work, the legal profession, for four, more than four decades. You don't want to miss this conversation. We'll be back in a moment with our guest, Asheville native, Mr. James Ferguson. Again, this is the Waters and Harvest Show. I'm Darren Waters. Always pleased to be here in the studio and always happy to be here with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, how is it going? Pretty lovely to be here. How it are you? is. It is. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. I've been waiting for this conversation for a long time. <laughs> you know, you and I both talk about the legal profession. I know that I once wanted to be an attorney, but I don't think that I was really cut out for it. Right? <laughs> you and I talked about that. I think I'm not sure if you wanted to as well, I but I know you had legal. Uh, yeah. Legal minds in your family. Yeah, well, my father, actually, both my parents at one point uh, pursued law school, but ended up changing their minds. Right. So, but I, I never pursued law school right. personally. Yeah, so it's, you know, it, you hear so many kids, they talk about wanting to go to law school. Mm-hmm. So I was a part of that number. But becoming a historian anyway, and studying some of the great legal minds that the country has mm-hmm. created, one of my favorite attorneys was Charles Hamilton Houston. And I fear that we don't know a lot about Charles Hamilton Houston. We don't hear his name as much. We hear people like Thurgood Marshall and other people. But Charles Hammond in Houston for African-American and African-American history was a very important uh, figure. And I and I found the quote by him where he talked about attorneys and the important mm-hmm. role that attorneys play in our society. He described attorneys, well, good attorneys, as social engineers. And he once said a social engineer is a highly skilled, perceptive, sensitive lawyer who understands the Constitution of the, of the United States and knows how to explore its uses in solving the problems of local local communities and embittering conditions of the underprivileged citizens. And I believe that when you think about the work of the of Mr. James Ferguson, it fits really well with this description that Hamilton Charles yeah. Hamilton Houston gives. And I think Hamilton's description is particularly apropos because certainly I would say since the Revolutionary War, America's American society has very much imagined itself as a law based society. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's it's, it's, it's it's interesting to think about uh, the role of the lawyer in a legalistic society as, as, as a type of social engineer. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that in his work as an attorney, Charles Hamilton Houston was definitely a social engineer, mm-hmm. you know, leading the school, the, the dean of the School of Law at Howard University. Uh, he eventually became the chief attorney for the, for the NAACP from 1935 to 1940. And he mentored a, a, a generation of attorneys. And I, I'm wondering about even with Mr. Ferguson, if if, if Charles Hamilton Houston may have been one of those figures that he was well aware of before he embarked on his own career as an attorney and how that may have influenced him. But we've also got the, the fact that Charles Hamilton Houston was the one who really developed uh, the strategy that attacked mm-hmm. Jim Crow segregation and helped to bring about the end of Jim, Jim Crow segregation in our country. And as we will see in the conversation that we'll have with Mr. Ferguson, he's been right at the heart of those efforts as well. Yeah, very, very important work. Look forward to the conversation. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we are looking forward to this conversation with Mr. Ferguson, and we're going to take just a brief break, and we'll be back in a few moments to talk with Mr. James Ferguson.
again. This is the Waters and Harvest Show. I'm Darren Waters. So glad that you all are staying here with us to listen to what is another important conversation. Marcus and I like to take the the opportunity, every opportunity we get to talk to people who have played very important roles, not only here in our local community, but people who have played roles through, uh, very important roles throughout the state, and I would say nationally and internationally as well. And and Mr. Ferguson is one of those figures. And I know that many of you, as you listen to us and you listen to the show, you're going to recognize the the name of (laughs) Mr. James Ferguson, uh, also known uh, as Fergie. And I, I tell you, he is is another person who I feel a deep connection with because, again, growing up here, he grew up with my parents. Uh, He and my father actually went to school together. Uh, His father and my grandfather were really good friends. So I feel, again, that Mr. Ferguson is kind of an extension of my Mm -hmm. own family in many ways. He he has asked me on numerous occasions to call him Fergie. I told him I will only do that when my mother is not around. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll hope that she's not listening to this show. Yeah, but for, <laughs> so, Mr. Ferguson, we want to welcome you here to the show. Welcome. Thank you for coming up. Mm-hmm. He, he has traveled up from Charlotte to be here with us today to have this conversation, to talk a little bit about his experiences. Thank you for honoring us with your presence today. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity to spend you know, some I just, time with you. Thank mm-hmm. you. I just wanted to take a moment to give people a little bit of uh, a background on you, that you are a founding partner uh, and now the senior partner in, in a Charlotte law firm. Uh, based in Charlotte, uh, Ferguson Chambers, and Sumter. Um, He's listed, if you go and just do a Google search, you will see that he is listed as one of the best attorneys in the United States. He has been a force, believe me, and I know this. I've visited him in Charlotte a number of times, and I've seen this. You can't go anywhere in Charlotte with Mr. Ferguson without a bunch of people coming around wanting to talk to him. We've, we've had lunch on a number of occasions, and the lunch is constantly interrupted by people coming over to, to have a conversation with Mr. Ferguson. So he is a force in his community in Charlotte. And... Um, and, and it's been a joy just to visit him there and to see his influence in that community. But he's also been an important force here in Asheville and in our community locally as well. And the story of his life, I believe, is an inspiration for us all and one that uh, that needs to be shared with a wider audience. And I am, am pleased that he's that both of my sons have had the opportunity to get to know him and have been inspired by the stories that that he's been able to tell. So. I was thinking about, Mr. Ferguson, where to even begin this conversation with you in this interview, because we could begin in so many different places. But I thought the, the, that the best place to start would just to begin at the beginning, to tell us a little bit about, could you just tell us a little bit about your time here in Asheville and what it was like to grow up here in Asheville? Well, I grew up in Asheville uh, in the 40s and 50s, uh, born in 1942. And I was born into an Asheville that was characterized by racial apartheid. Everything was based on race. It was a divided community, black and white. Blacks on one side of town, whites on the other side of town. Whites in positions of authority, uh, in positions of uh, economic advantage. Blacks on the other side, mm-hmm. schools segregated, housing segregated, buses segregated, even garbage collection was segregated. Mm-hmm. So you can uh, you can just say in a word that I grew up under Asheville apartheid. Oh, by, wow. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, and, Mark. and 
Let me just say, I'm, I'm going to join Darren in refusing to refer to you as Fergie. <laughs> but, uh, if, if I don't answer, then you'll understand. Okay. <laughs> touche, touche. Um, so, wow. So, 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 so you're describing um, the Asheville that you grew up in as, as a sort of Asheville characterized by racial apartheid. Um, how would you describe the African-American community at that time? Um, in Asheville, even, 40s, 50s. Yeah, mm-hmm. even though it was segregated yeah. and, and, and separated. It was segregated and separated, but it was inspirational mm-hmm. in that uh, uh, although the black community was disadvantaged economically, mm-hmm. disadvantaged educationally, disadvantaged in pr- practically every way uh, you can think of, um, but there was a an, an optimism about it. Uh, there was a closeness to it, a connection to it. Everybody felt connected to each other, and uh, there was sort of a, a spirit of mutual mm-hmm. help and cooperation because everybody uh, at some level in, in the African-American community wanted to see that community overcome this apartheid mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that bore so heavily on us. So people were connected in, in practically every way you can think of. Uh, and if there was there was a, a strong sense of community. Uh, the schools were segregated, so all of the African Americans went to the same schools. There were three or four elementary schools, one middle or junior high school, and one high school that served not only Asheville, but all of Buncombe County and many of the uh, neighboring uh, school districts uh, here in Western North Carolina. I can remember it when I was in high school. Um, there were there were students at Stevens Lee, where I went to school, the all-black high school, that were bused 44 miles one way every day. That's a total trip of 88 miles uh, for, for students school. coming to school, going home, and trying to live and and uh, work out uh, their their lives in a, uh, under the most difficult circumstances. But there was still that sense of camaraderie. There was still that sense of community. There was still that sense of closeness, and it was sort of accepted that this is how you go to school, this mm-hmm. is how you get an education, so this is what mm-hmm. we do. So nobody came to school every day complaining about riding 44 miles to get there and having to ride 44 miles to get back home. They were glad to be there. All right. Mm-hmm. We were glad to have this opportunity to learn together, to play together, and that's what that experience was all about. I look back on it now, and I think about the apartheid aspect of it, but it was so much more than that. I also think about the community aspect of it and mm-hmm. what it was about then growing up. It was all about community. Uh, everybody in the community knew at some level that it was a seg- segregated society that we lived in, but that wasn't dwelled upon. It really wasn't even talked about that much in our neighborhoods. It wasn't talked about that much in the family. We knew it was there. It was part of what we had to deal with, so it, it was a part of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was later in my life that I came to understand more clearly uh, just how uh, limiting and unequal growing up was in Asheville. Right. And it's interesting to hear you talk about how even in in the midst of that, you know, the the apartheid that existed, the segregation that existed, that there was a sense of optimism in the community. I mean, I've heard so many stories about uh, people's experiences at places like Stevens Lee and how it was such a, as an institution, it was such a force uh, in the community. 
if we think about um, integration and, and a lot of these institutions being lost, like Stevens Lee was an institution that that was lost in that process. How has it changed? Did it change for the better, or, or, or can we see where there are pluses and minuses to how things did change over time? And we do want to talk to you about the role that you played in helping to facilitate that change. I'll be glad to talk mm-hmm. about that. But as I look at it, uh, the change overall from a segregated society to the one that was less segregated uh, was good. It's full of pluses, and there were some minuses but not many. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the minus, I, I suppose, if I wanted to single out the one that, that to me uh, resonates most, uh, was, the, uh, was the, the, the coming apart, to some extent, of the tightness of that community mm-hmm. and uh, losing some of the togetherness and some of the unity that we had as a community. Um, but that was... That, that was replaced by the experience of having a larger community, a community that included uh, people and events and activities that we could not experience mm-hmm. in that segregated community. And any time you, you broaden your horizons in that way, then you, you have to grow. Right. So mm-hmm. we grew. We grew. Um, and, and, and now, you know, if, if you look at it now where – uh, the schools are, are, are less segregated than they once were, and mm-hmm. the workplace is not as segregated. No, nothing is quite as segregated as it was, except perhaps church uh, and, and religion. But uh, because of this cross-culturalization that resulted from uh, segregation, even, even though segrega- uh, desegregation was resisted, uh, so fiercely, uh, there was still this cross-culturalization that enriched uh, the African American mm-hmm. community, and also enriched the white community. Yeah. Okay, wow. Um, and so, so Mr. Ferguson, one of the res- critical responses of the of, of the Asheville community to um, Asheville's, uh, you know, system of racial apartheid was a score. Um, the the development of a score. Could you speak to that for us a little bit? Yes. Uh, let me first uh, say what ASCO is the acronym mm-hmm. for. It's the Asheville Student Committee on Racial Equality. Mm-hmm. And uh, ASCO was actually formed in 1960. And it was formed as a result of uh, the efforts of my colleagues, of, of which I was a part. I was actually the first president of ASCO. Uh, but we came together because we wanted to change Asheville. We wanted to change the racial segregation in Asheville. We were in, inspired um, by the example that was set in Greensboro when uh, the five uh, black A&T students uh, went downtown and to desegregate Woolworths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you know, took on like wildfire among communities throughout the South, in particular the communities where there were colleges. We didn't have a, a college, a black college in Asheville. But some of my high school schoolmates and I, who were seniors at that time at Stevens Lee, wanted to be a part of this movement that mm-hmm. was taking place. So we came together, consulted with some of the adults in the community, consulted with some of the black lawyers, with the, the only two black lawyers in Asheville at the time, Reuben Daly and Harold Epps, mm-hmm. uh, to try to find a way for us to participate. And we did, and uh, through the help 
of uh, the lawyers through the help of uh, interested and concerned adults in the community, one of whom, uh, Mr. Will Rowland, who owned Rowland's Jewelry, he lost his business because of his commitment to bringing about a change mm -hmm. in Asheville. But through the, the help and guidance and support of uh, uh, the few adults who uh, came together to support us, uh, we formed A-Score, and as high school students, distinguished from college students all over the South, uh, we were the ones who were the impetus for desegregating Asheville. And that was a, a, a wonderful experience as I look back on it, uh, because we didn't know what we were doing. We knew we needed to do something. We knew that there needed to be some change. Right, right. Um, and we were like you know, typical high school students. We had fun and did crazy things, but it was important to us to be a part of that movement. And as a result of that, we found ourselves uh, actually negotiating with uh, managers and owners of um, department stores, stores and lunch counters throughout Asheville. And through that uh, process, um, we learned how to negotiate. We learned how to express ourselves. We learned how to listen. Mm -hmm. We learned how to uh, advocate. And uh, as a result, Asheville actually desegregated its lunch counters and public facilities without actual sit-in demonstrations. Right. We were prepared to do that. But um, Asheville, which wanted to keep what what it viewed as this good name as a racially moderate community, right, right. Uh, talked with us, met with us, and eventually worked with us to create uh, a, a, a community that was not segregated as right. it had been before. Right. It's, it's really <clears throat> interesting because one of the recurring stories that comes out of uh, any conversations about A-Score is the fact that what makes your experience so unique is that you all were high school students doing yeah. this and the challenges that, uh, that that posed because unlike college students who were away from their parents and away from home, you all had to negotiate the, the conversations that you had to have with your parents. And I think that this is a, a, a real rich story for not only our local community to hear, but for communities throughout the country to hear that. And um, and I, I marvel at the fact that you all were um, were astute enough to not only form a score and do to take up this work, but also were were willing to listen to the guidance of, of, of people like your parents who um, who helped you all get the training that you needed to be able to to do the the uh, negotiations that took place. I mean, that's a rich, really rich part of that story, and it's a story that we're glad to be able to bring to a wider audience. And, and, and if I might ask this quickly, uh, Mr. Ferguson, the teachers at Stevens Lee um, were they in favor of the work of A score? Or, you know, were they? very much involved in helping students to think through this process of, of desegregating Asheville, or? The teachers were not directly involved. Okay, okay. Uh, okay. And uh, uh, in terms of how they felt uh, in, in, uh, uh, supportive or uh, not so supportive or whatever, it, it very interesting. Okay. Uh, there was some who were concerned about what this might mean mm -hmm. for us, that yeah. we might be hurt, that mm -hmm. we might be injured, that you know, it, it could happen. So they were concerned about our safety. There were some who were, and, and only a few, who were more concerned about how it might affect them and their jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, the, the whole community, uh, the whole African-American community at that time was largely dependent uh, for their livelihood on, uh, black on white businesses, white institutions. Mm -hmm. So that was some fear. And uh, you, you mentioned parents. Uh, I have to say that I have absolutely great respect for the parents 
of us young students who didn't know what we were doing but knew mm-hmm. we needed to do something. Uh, but the parents made a tremendous sacrifice because many of them uh, felt, and quite correctly so, that they might be affected mm-hmm. by what we did. They might be affected in an adverse way. Mm-hmm. They might lose their jobs. They might lose their positions. Mm-hmm. They might be uh, the victims of reprisals of you know uh, all kinds, imagined and unimagined. But it was uh, a sacrifice for them to allow us to participate in that movement as we did. Uh, I know that from my own experience, uh, my mother worked as a maid in a mm-hmm. white home. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father did uh, odd jobs for, uh, for, for white uh, families and um, also did some work on the railroad. So they were both potentially subject to the kinds of reprisals that I talked about. Right. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, with my parents, mm-hmm. but there were some parents who were so concerned that they would not allow their children to participate. To participate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, as I look back on it, I can understand that, right? Uh, because the most important thing to to a, a caring parent is that parent's child, mm-hmm. and they want what's best for the child. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we always think about is the safety of our children. People right. think about that right now. That's right. I want my child to be safe, no right. matter what. And uh, you, you, a, a parent guides and directs. Uh, a, a child's uh, existence uh, out of their concern for for safety, mm-hmm. and uh, that concern is to me uh, now that I can look at it in its full context was really an expression of love, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of, of family, love of, of child. So it sounds like you know you were cutting really in thinking about your career as an attorney, and so we kind of moved towards that. <clears throat> it sounds to me like you were really cutting your teeth so to speak, here with the experience that you were having here in Asheville. So was there an early interest um, on your part, because you would leave here to go to North Carolina Central University uh, in Durham, uh, North Carolina, where we just found out, I knew that you had studied history, which, you know, endeared me to you even more as a historian. Uh, But I found out that you also majored, you double majored in both English and history uh, at 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 North Carolina Central, and interestingly enough, Marcus majored in history. At, no, majored in English, English at Morehouse at, uh, College. Morehouse yeah. College. Oh, so yeah. you've kind of got us both covered here uh, with, <laughs> with both of our <laughs> our academic um, professions here. Um, but did you always have an interest in law? Because you would go on from North Carolina Central to Columbia University to study law. Was that your goal from the very beginning? And did did your time with A-Score and the work that you do here have any influence on that? My time with A-Score had a tremendous influence on my ultimate decision to go into law. It was uh, through A-Score that I actually met the first lawyers that I ever knew. Mm-hmm. And those were the two African-American lawyers Ooh, here yeah. in Charlotte, uh, a lawyer Daly and, and a lawyer Epps. We met with them um, because our adult advisors wanted uh, to make sure that we understood what the consequences of our actions might be. We were, we were prepared mm-hmm. to do sit-ins. That's what we set out to do. That's what we thought we would do. But we learned uh, the nonviolent method. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a, a stepwise method. You study a problem. Well, you identify a problem. Mm-hmm. Then you study that problem. And then you seek to negotiate a solution to that problem. And if you don't so, uh, get a solution through negotiation, you do direct action. Well, we learned. I didn't go into the A score knowing right. that. We right. learned that. Uh, and and one of the things that stands out in my mind is when we met with the lawyers 
who gave us their time. They didn't charge us anything. Uh, but we met with them, and I was expecting this long lecture to tell me all about the law and all the things we needed to be careful about and to do and to give me this. But they didn't give that. That wasn't, that wasn't what they, they, they told us. When we met with them, we told them what we wanted to do uh, and waited for the lecture. And the lecture was essentially this. You all do what you have to do. And if you need us, call us, and we'll be there. Oh, okay, okay. And that was basically it. I mean, it right. wasn't in those terms, but that was basically it. Uh, and they were prepared uh, to work with us. They were prepared to represent us. They were prepared to do whatever they, they needed to do. As it turns out, we didn't have to call upon them because, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. we were able to negotiate uh, the desegregation of, of the public facilities of Asheville. But after meeting with them on that occasion, I was so impressed that here were two people who had educated themselves, who had the skills to work with us to do what we needed to do to help protect us and to help us further our goals. That's when I actually solidified my feeling that I wanted to go into law. I said, I want to be in a position to help my community in the same way. Right. And and I decided then that I wanted to go to law school. Um, Well, um, at that time, uh, I, I was the youngest of seven children, so I had brothers and sisters who were in college. And two of my brothers, uh, actually three of my brothers, actually went to North Carolina College before I did. Okay. okay. Uh, so that uh, uh, steered me towards, towards North Carolina College as a place to go. And North Carolina College had a law school, uh, and I knew that I, you know, if I was successful in, in undergraduate school, I'd be able to go to law school. And there was a law school right there. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, I didn't go to North Carolina College. Law school. Um, my uh, some of my uh, advisors and mentors uh, at North Carolina Central uh, helped me to realize that I needed to make a change and to get out of North Carolina and go to um, uh, some other law school. So I applied to uh, lots of law schools, including some of the Ivy League schools, and wound up going to Columbia because that's where I saw my best opportunity. Okay. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Ferguson, I mean, so so. <clears throat> Along with your late law partner, Julius Chambers, I mean, you've been involved in some of the country's most important mm-hmm. civil rights <clears throat> cases, for example, Swan versus Charlie Mecklenburg case, cases of the early 70s. And you've also done work in South Africa as well, extensive work, um, yes. in fact. Could you speak a little bit about that in the, in, in, in the time we have remaining here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know time is strong, <laughs> short. But, short. <laughs> uh, but yes, I, I was, uh, as a matter of fact, um, I met Chambers uh, when I was at Columbia in my third year and planning to come back to the South. I was actually planning to come mm-hmm. to Asheville and join up with uh, uh, Mr. Daly and, and, and Mr. Epps and, and do a practice there. But I met Chambers at the Legal Defense Fund in New York. Uh, that's the organization that actually was a spinoff organization from uh, the, the NAACP legal team that Houston uh, headed up. But in any event, I met Chambers. I was coming to uh, Asheville. I, I wanted to practice civil rights law, shared that with him. He was, uh, even at that early stage of his career, that was 1967, he had been in practice three years, uh, and was was one of the legal lights, uh, and burgeoning legal lights in in the community and in the country. Mm -hmm. So he, in in short, he encouraged me to come to Charlotte. So I went to Charlotte, Mm -hmm. and uh, together uh, with uh, Chambers, who was the lead lawyer in our firm, and Adam Stein, who became a partner, and Jim Lanning, who became a partner, we established the first racially integrated law firm in North Carolina right. and perhaps in the South. I'm not sure of that, but I think in the South. Mm-hmm. And our idea was to 
to create within a law firm uh, a microcosm of the larger society we wanted to see by right. doing the civil rights work that we dedicated ourselves to doing. Well, again, this is a rich conversation, and the time goes by so fast with <clears throat> us, and this means that we, we need to have another conversation with Definitely. Mr. Ferguson at some Definitely. point, because to talk about his work internationally, and how, but we've seen how important he's been here. Mm-hmm. So Marcus and I, again, want to thank you all for tuning into the Waters and Harvest Show, and just listening to this important conversation, and just reminding you again that the show is produced in here in uh, at Blue, Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. All right. Follow us on Facebook and, and Twitter, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. <laughs>